waiting, 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 and waiting, and waiting, and waiting, and waiting some more. That's the word, the word that comes to define my life, the word I've come to despise. I don't know how many ways I can say it, pray it, scream it at you, God. I'm ready. Passionate, isn't she? Or maybe you might call her a brat. Of course, I can say that because she's me. A precursor 22 years ago of yours truly. I'm ready to do whatever you want. I'm ready to to take a bold step in my faith. I'm ready to go wherever, to do whatever, and to do it however you want. So what's the holdup? You tell me to wait that, that you're preparing me. Well, it feels like I'm being overcooked down here, God. Patience was never my virtue. But back then, I used to live in the now and never could see the big picture. I don't have a husband. Two years, she hasn't met him yet. I don't have any kids. She's going to have five. And God... I'm getting a little fat. Ouch! And then there's Simon. Simon. From 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. Nanny, the glorious result of my hard-earned bachelor's good old Simon. Good old Simon? Good old Simon? Simon, who you would discover later had a massive speech impediment? Good old Simon, who spent the rest of his elementary school remembering his kind nanny as he struggled? Good old Simon, that would propel you into the career of your life and your master's degree in speech pathology? I'm just stumbling along here, God, in complete darkness and you are totally absent thank you thank you for that not my best moment if i could know then what i know now that god's pulling the strings in my life if i could tell her two things one that god is working when life seems meaningless and two buckle up sweetheart you're in for a heck of a ride So, how do we buckle up and enjoy the ride? As you look over your lives in retrospect, where are those moments where you've seen God guide as you look back upon your life? Today we're going to continue our series entitled Roots. We're going to try and answer some of these questions concerning my life and maybe your life. How has God guided you in the past? You know, we've heard from Pastor Steve and Pastor Dan and Josh and Mike, and now it's my turn for true confessions. But before we jump into our text this morning, it seems like the acceptable thing right now in these uh, sermons on roots is for each of the speakers to have a picture of themselves when they were a child. And so I asked Sue Maxwell in the office to get a picture of me when I was very young. (laughs) 
You notice I was old when I was young, but I was a fast learner. So when we look at the definition of roots, there's a number of definitions, but one of the ones that I'd like to look at today is that of an animal like a pig turning up the ground with his snoot in search of food. So this morning we're going to look at um, maybe some things in my life that I'm not totally proud of or it's kind of embarrassing. I, I kind of like the idea of the definition of roots that talks about that part of the plant that carries the nutrients to the rest of the plant. But this morning I'm going to allow you to root around in my life and maybe you're going to find some decaying things, some things not so pleasant. You know, it's been said that uh, confession is good for the soul, but possibly bad for the reputation. And I'm going to trust my reputation with you this morning. But as we do so, I invite you to turn in our text to Philippians. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1. It's going to be up here on the screen, but if you have your Bible or device, I encourage you to open that uh, particular instrument to the book of Philippians. Paul starts the letter to the, what is now uh, part of modern Greece with the normal salutation. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. And joy is the main theme you're going to find in the book of Philippians. And so Paul continues, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's that last verse that is one of my life verses. For in it we find that only has God worked in my past, he continues to work in my present, and I look forward to him working in my future. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul starts by saying that he has great assurance that God has already worked in his life. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on. You know, sometimes when we are talking to people in, in church circles, we ask them the question, when did you accept Christ? Now, that's a good question in one way if we're trying to determine whether they made their commitment to Christ. But theologically, there are some problems with that question. When did you accept Christ? For in many ways, what the Bible teaches is for us to come to the realization that we have been accepted by Christ. Paul is very explicit when he writes to the church at Ephesus in the second chapter, verse 1. As he says to that church, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin when you used to live, uh, when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit which is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God in his rich mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. 
Several years ago, there was a very popular movie entitled Dead Men, Dead Man Walking. And this is what Paul is trying to tell us here in this passage in Ephesians, that because of our transgressions, because of our sin, because of the stubbornness of our soul, we were all dead men and women walking. But Paul continues in verse 4. Because of the great love for us, God in his rich mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Redemption. Our reunion with God is only made possible because as dead men and dead women, Christ dies on the cross. And therefore, Paul says, verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus. What an astonishing thought that before the creation of the world, God predestined you. He predestined me, if we're part of God's family, to be adopted into that family. John Newton, who wrote the, probably the most famous hymn in America today, Amazing Grace. As you know, he was a slave trader. And he was very fond of saying, after he became a Christian, these words, It is well for me that God chose me for his own before I was born. For if he had not, he would never would have seen any reason for doing so afterwards. Now, as you start to root into my life, you'll find this true. If you're an adolescent boy here this morning, stop listening. Three times I was kicked out of Sunday school. Twice I was asked to leave worship service. That's leave, not lead the worship service. I remember one time when I was being very disruptive in the midst of a worship service, and the pastor said to me and his son as we were in the back uh, part of the church, if you're not quiet, Don and Larry, we're going to have to ask you to leave. We never thought he'd do it. But right in the middle of his sermon, he stopped and said, Don and Larry, would you leave the service? But my, my, my greatest prank, if you, I can use that word, great prank, was during or just before our worship service, when I snuck into the sanctuary and I went up to the piano and I put metal thumbtacks on all the hammers of the piano. And so during the solo, when the pianist came down to play the piano and as she started to play the piano, it sounded like a honky-tonk piano. You know, as the metal hit the strings and it, it just was unbelievable. And then she didn't know what to do because there was a strange noise on this piano. So she just played all the way through the whole solo with this unbelievable instrument. While us adolescent boys in the back laughed and tittered and thought that was just so funny. But before the foundation of the world, Paul says, inserting my name into it, he chose Larry Fullerton to be adopted into the kingdom. This really came into sharp focus to me when my mother was moving from the place, the home that we grew up in. 
She found the Bible that I carried in 1958. And the flyleaf of that Bible has written these words. I, Lawrence Fullerton, accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior tonight, September 28, 1958. The pastor, when I went forward in the evening service, asked me to write that in the flyleaf of my Bible. And you'll notice there are some spelling words that I didn't get exactly right, some words I didn't spell exactly right. I was really nervous because he asked me to do it right on the spot. But on that night, September 28, 1958, God began a good work in my life. Fifty-five years later, God's still at work in my life. You know, there hasn't been a lot of good soil for him to plant things. And as he has rooted around in my soul, he has been very gracious to me. But that work, he began September 28, 1958. He has carried on for the last 55 years. Paul writes, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on. And that's the second part of this passage. God is in the midst not only of starting the work in your life and in my life, but in also and carrying it on. Fast forward in my life through my college career, and then six years in the Air Force, and then my seminary career. Now I'm in my first church in Wheaton, Illinois. It's 1985. I've been there for 10 years. And college church has a policy where you can go away on a sabbatical, and their policy is I could go away for 10 months. Anywhere in the world and doing anything as long as it was going to be a spiritual refreshment for me. My wife, I've, I met there. We are now married in 1985. I actually were married before that, but the year is 1985. Kimmy has come along and now Kimmy Connect. Our second child, David, has been born. And Amy is still a twinkle in, her, in my eye as she's with us this morning and going to get married in six weeks. As you may or may not know, Susan grew up in Afghanistan where her parents were pioneer medical missionaries. Now in 1985, hardly anybody knew where Afghanistan was. And as you root around in my life, you would, you would find that uh, as a young boy, when I met missionaries, I usually thought they were, well, weird. The one missionary I knew very well from my home church, she was from Guatemala. She didn't speak English very well. She had an accent. She didn't dress right. She was kind of peculiar in the way she acted. And so somehow I had carried that on into my 10 years at College Church. College Church had a great missions program. But I still had this feeling that these missionaries were kind of different, kind of weird. As a matter of fact, they made me uncomfortable. For they appeared more pious than I was even as a pastor. But Susan wanted us to take our sabbatical and go overseas as missionaries. I love my wife, 
And I had come to understand that not all missionaries were weird. And although I wasn't ready to go to Afghanistan, I said, okay, I'll go to Metro Manila. And so off we went to Metro Manila. Now, this is the point where you're probably thinking, oh, yes, Larry is the missions pastor. And I bet it is in in Metro Manila where he has this great call to missions. And he just falls in love with missionaries overseas. Wrong. Just the opposite happened. As soon as we walked off the airplane into the humidity of Metro Manila, and as I realized the people I was going to be working with, they didn't all speak English and they weren't all nice, I started a countdown calendar. As if I was in Vietnam, you know, 158 days to go before I can get out of here, 157, 156. I actually had a calendar when I was marking it off. Lord, I need to get out of this place. This is not what I had in mind. This is not what I signed up for. Now, since I, since this time in 1985, I've been back to Manila several times as a missions pastor. And of all the 27 countries I've been into, if there's one country I would say you need to go back to if you want to feel good about being an American, it's the Philippines. They are gracious people. The problem was not the Filipinos at that point. The problem was Larry Fullerton. We got there, and I I felt just, I had no privacy. We had a small apartment, and it was hot and sticky, and, and the kids would come around every meal and look in the windows and watch us eat. We had absolutely no place where I felt I could go and actually be by myself. I was experiencing what? I know now is culture shock. I felt trapped in this culture. I was a constant complainer. My wife said I carried the gift of misery. (laughs) And I tried to give it to everyone around me. But God had begun that work in my life in 1958, 27 years before this event. And God was in the process of carrying on to completion. And it all came into sharp focus during the final week I was in Manila. For I was asked to speak at the Kamias Bible Church All Church Retreat. Now, when I say Kamias, when I first uh, talked about this with a person in the Philippines, they said, you worked at the Communist Bible Church? No, it's Kamias, which is a section of Metro Manila. But I was invited to speak at the retreat. And we had been in the country for nine months at that point. Now, to understand the scene of this particular church, you have to understand a little bit about the Kamias Bible Church. It was made of about 150 people, a third of which were moderately middle class, a third of which were poor, and a third of which were from a settlement, if I can use that word, called KJ. Now, KJ was the conjunction of two streets, K and J, came together in what used to be an open field, maybe two or three acres. And onto that field, thousands of what the Filipinos called squatters had taken up residence. 
The squatters had come in from the countryside into Metro Manila hoping that they could find employment. And they had just squatted in these areas. There was no title to the land. There was no such thing as a purchase of any property, no titles, no zoning board, no electricity, no plumbing, not a single paved road. All the shacks are made of the cardboard, salvaged from the local dump. When the rain came, or worse yet, the monsoon came, the whole sediment would be washed away. And they'd have to come back in and find the cardboard again in the dumps and put together their shacks. There were kids everywhere, especially babies, for if you were an adolescent, you were already out in the street trying to make a living. Susan, as a pediatrician, was needed in KJ. But I, as the pastor, I was not needed at all. Oh, yes. There was one little stream that rolled through the side of KJ. All the Westerners and most of the people in Manila called it Typhoid Creek. It was a toilet, the laundry, and the drinking fountain in one place. So there I was speaking at this retreat. The end of my final talk, I was told by the leaders, I was the prey. And then the Filipinos in mass were all going to come forward, and they were all going to get their communion cup and their wafer. And they were going to serve someone else. Now, being a very systematic person, I looked at that and thought, how is that ever going to work? 150 people are going to go forward at the same time, pick up the communion elements, and pass to someone else. Well, who are they going to pass it to because they've all already got communion cups? And I thought, this is really going to be chaos. It's going to be a fitting ending to my time in the Philippines. And so at the end of the talk, I made my way back as far as I could to the back of the, of the um, place we were meeting at, the retreat site. I didn't want anything to do with this. And as I stood back there, there was this woman from KJ. She had a hump back. She had a limp. She had kind of a gnarly face, gnarly hands. And there was a moment I will never forget when I locked eyes with this woman and she broke into a smile. And I didn't smile at all. And she started towards me, limping with that communion cup. And I realized at that instant that she had in her hands exactly what I needed. She had that element that symbolized the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And I desperately needed that. I desperately needed her to serve me. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, describes the time when he was in the midst of the prison in, Soviet, in the former Soviet Union. And he came to this realization, as he wrote later. 
If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? I was no more deserving than the poorest person in KJ. For the evil cut right through my heart. And to me at that moment, a moment I will never forget to my dying day. I came to the realization that the driving force in my life will be the proclamation of the gospel to people who never have the opportunity to hear it. I don't want to give you a guilt trip this morning, but is it fair? It's an issue of fairness in my life. That people in the developing country, in America in particular, have multiple opportunities to hear the gospel. They can hear it on the radio. They can see it on TV. They can go to an evangelist crusade. They can come to a church like Black Rock, a church in almost every corner of some town, of the towns in America. And yet there will be people tonight who will go to sleep as the sun sets on their lives and they will never have up to this point the opportunity to hear the gospel once. And you and I, dear friends, even if this is your first time in this church, you have opportunity upon opportunity to hear the gospel. And God called me at that moment to invest my life until God calls me home in challenging the church in America to be involved in cross-cultural missions. I tell the the missionaries every year when they come to Black Rock to our mission conference that I'm not tough enough to be a missionary. So God called me to be a missions pastor. To dedicate my life to calling, equipping, training, and sending missionaries cross-culturally to people who never have the opportunity to hear the gospel. You know, I had no idea That the work that began in my life in 1958 would result in me being here this day. It is an astounding fact in my life. God has a wonderful sense of humor that he would take this impish little boy who was willing to put tax on a piano and call him to be a pastor of a great church like Black Rock. God began that good work in my life. God has begun the work in your life. If you are a Christ follower, he is carrying it on today. But there's a third part of this. And that simply is that last part of that verse. Carried on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Two quick implications. First, Paul calls us, if you are a Christ follower, to leave a legacy. Your human life, your proclamation of the gospel to other people can have a lasting effect 
Long after you die, Pastor Earl Lehman at Grace Baptist Church in Milford, Connecticut, had no idea when he gave that, what we used to call then, and we can still call it now an altar call, for me to come forward in the evening service, that the result would be that I'd be standing here this day. That's the legacy, at least a little legacy of Earl Lehman. And you and I, our story doesn't end at death. The story continues as we, as God uses us, even after we're gone, to impact other lives. But there's a second part of this, carry on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. And that simply is this, that human history is not circular. It's linear. It's going towards a conclusion. It has a purpose. It has a direction. In the 24th chapter of Matthew, Jesus is asked by his disciples, when's the kingdom coming? What's the key that unlocks it? And he says in the 14th verse, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations as a testimony, and then the end will come. You want to take poverty out of the world? You wanted to take people living in a place like KJ and make it better? You want the end of death? Preach the gospel. Send missionaries to places where the gospel has never been taught. The Great Commission, the final thing Jesus says to us, go and make disciples of all nations. One day, the final proclamation will take place. The final people group will hear the gospel. And this is the driving thing in my life. The proclamation will be made. And that will be the key that unlocks the kingdom. And Christ will come back. And wouldn't it be great, just wouldn't it be great, friends, If that final proclamation is made by a missionary sent out from Black Rock Congregational Church in Fairfield, Connecticut. From this place. From you and me sending them out. What's the takeaway from this sermon? Three things. First of all, the missions conference we often say kind of give you three challenges to go, to give, and to pray. I want to reverse that order. Pray. You know, you may have someone in your life who you think is so far away from God, you think, you know, the the gospel will never get to this person. It's just, I've tried over and over, and maybe it's a family member or a friend, a child, a parent, and you feel like giving up. And I would say to you, friend, pray. Pray and pray some more. For God is sovereign and able to reach into any life and to adopt them into the family of God. Second, and with a certain amount of hesitation, but I I, I want to be forthright here. When I talk about giving, you notice in the bulletin that we said we were $86,000 behind in our expense budget, what we need to run this church. We're $50,000 behind in our missions budget at this very moment. Selfishly, as I look back on what happened in 1958, 
If Earl Lehman, that pastor of that church, had not been given a salary, he never would have made the proclamation in all likelihood. And from a human perspective, I never would have had the opportunity to respond to the gospel. You know, and sometimes we on the pastoral staff, you may wonder, why are we so hesitant uh, talking about finances at the church? Well, well, part of it is we, it's kind of embarrassing for us. Because your contributions pay our salary. And it's almost like we're being self-serving by asking you to give to the budget. But it's not about the pastors. It's about changed lives. And that's what we're about. And so I want to ask you, dear friends, to help us make up the deficit. We cannot operate without your financial support. And so I simply ask you to give. And finally, go. Yep, I'm still the missions pastor. And I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider about stepping outside your comfort zone. We have found that these mission trips I'm going to be talking about are the things that God often uses to change the lives of people. That's why I'm so committed to mission trips, because it was one of those trips, this sabbatical, that changed my life. And so some of you need to think about the stamp trip going to Rwanda. You know, that leaves on November 8th. You're coming right up to the, the point where you need to make application for that. And the August 25th, the applications are due. Maybe you want to go see what God is doing in Africa. Go to Rwanda. Or maybe you want to go to Central America and you want to go to the Dominican Republic trip. Maybe you want to go see what World Vision, how World Vision is making a difference as they adopt children, and you can be part of that. And part of that trip would be going to Haiti, and maybe you want to understand, you know, I gave that $360 for that particular um, commode, that particular latrine. I want to see what, it, what, what is actually happening there. This is the trip for you. Or maybe, maybe you want to go with me to Thailand. That trip's going in the uh, latter part of January or the first part of February. 